0: This program is brought to you by the Gin Society, www.ginsociety.com. Hello and welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm Shane Lee, your host. Today on the show, Craig Johnson, former professional footballer, growing up in Newcastle, Australia, and played in the English Premier League between 1977 and 1988. He won five league titles, including an FA Cup in 1986. He recorded 271 appearances for the Liverpool Football Club, He's an innovator, an inventor, and an artist. And Dave Gleason, also a Newcastle boy, best known as the lead singer in the Australian rock band The Screaming Jets. He's been a radio host on Triple M and a vocal coach on It Takes Two TV show. He's also recently fronted the Australian rock group The Angels. He's a true rock legend. Welcome to Lunch with Lee. Let's get started. Boys, welcome to the show. On the show today, Craig Johnson, former professional footballer. He's an innovator, an inventor and an artist. So welcome, Craig. Uh, how are you going? Really good, mate. And also on the show today, Dave Gleeson, also a Newcastle boy, best known for the lead singer of the Australian rock band The Screaming Jets, a true rock legend. Welcome, good
1: G'day, mate. How are you going? It's, uh, it's the curly-headed Newcastle lads, is it?
0: Isn't it what? Yes. <laughs> so, Craig, I'll start with you, mate, which is what I think is one of the most amazing sporting stories, particularly in Australia, but you know, it almost seemed like the odds were stacked against you from the start. You were born in Joburg, and your parents moved them back to Newcastle, and you contracted at the age of six, as it, osteomyelitis, which is an infection of the bone? Yep. Talk ta- ta- me through that.
2: Well... Dad was from Cardiff and mum was from um, Cessnock and they actually met on the boat going over to England and they didn't know each other and dad was going to Scotland to be a soccer player and mum was going to London to be a teacher and dad struggled with his soccer, came down to London, met up with mum, got married, had my older sister and then on the way home... On the way home, they stopped at uh, South Africa on the boat, and they liked it, so they stayed, and that's where I was born. So I was born there, but but I'm an Aussie. And then when I was six, we all came back home, uh, back to Cardiff, and... Uh, and then Spears Point. And on my first day of school, I had, a, had a, on the way home, I uh, had a fight with a kid and he beat me and uh, he, he kicked me and <laughs> my leg got badly infected. And a week later, I was still in bed and screaming and shouting because it was so sore and red and swollen. And uh, the doctor came in and said, that looks a lot like polio. Took me to hospital. They said, yeah, it probably is. So mum signed the amputation order to cut the leg off which which would have slowed me down on the wing. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, j- just fortunately, Newcastle Hospital, uh, there was a touring American doctor called Dr. Glass. And he said he was a specialist in polio. He said, I don't think this is polio. I think it's osteomyelitis. And if you let me operate, I'll save the leg. I, can, I think I can save the leg. So Mum said, okay, and he did. And it was 1966 and black and white television and um, the World Cup was on in England. And it's from the hospital bed. I watched watched <laughs> the World Cup in black and black and white with the Charlton brothers. <laughs> yes. And uh, that's where I got my, my love of soccer. Awesome. Awesome,
0: man. Doing research on both of you guys, the things I found you had in common, you're both relentless, both committed, both hardworking. And a lot of the listeners on this show are parents often asking me advice on, what do you do with a young, good sportsman or a young, good musician? So you're both great examples of that. So, Gilles, what was it like in the early days for you growing up?
1: Uh, look, I grew up in Cardiff, <laughs> strangely <laughs> My enough. My goodness. <laughs> and I, I had a big family. I had uh, seven brothers and sisters. And I was a rugby league player. I came from a rugby league family. But that was mostly because um they, they had a lot of Sunday afternoon things with, with soccer. And we were, we were a church-going family, so anything on Sunday was, like, totally out. But uh, I was a huge fan of soccer growing up. I used to go and see the Newcastle-KB United as a kid. But, yeah, I just grew up loving sport, getting on me pushy, and uh, we had the bush back right onto the, the back of our house, and uh, we'd just ride our pushies all day after playing footy on the weekend. And The, the hard part for me was in high school, I had, I wasn't allowed to go to Cardiff High. I had to go into Marist Brothers which was in town a long bus ride away from Cardiff but for me as a like for a young muse I guess it was when, when when it started happening about 16 years old or whatever we just spent every waking minute we'd be drawing you know names on our books and and you know, like band names that we wanted to call ourselves and every spare minute would be rehearsing and we were very lucky in, at that stage to be able to rehearse as much as we did and because we loved it so much um, we we just did it and did it and did it and that's that's the hard part I think for young kids nowadays is they don't get the opportunities in especially in music to uh, to just play and play and play. Yeah,
0: we'll get to that. Look, growing up for me it was well, my old man was uh, Bob Lee was a, um, a metallurgist in the steelworks. And looking into your story, Craig, what your parents did for you, it made me quite emotional actually thinking of what my parents did for me also, and, and for my brother Brett, and from my younger brother Grant. But so your dad was a footballer, and he. I think he trialled for Preston North End and also Dundee United. And it was he that encouraged you to go to play over in the UK from the age of about 15?
2: Oh, before that, back then there was a culture of craft because we had no toys. Okay, you know, Gleeso had, had the pushy, you know, I had the pushy <laughs> surfboard, a skateboard. Uh, but um, apart from that, you know, your craft was your joy, your love, and it was single-mindedness. Now you've got apps, you've got bikes, you've got holidays, you got, you got everything, mm-hmm. um, and it's all much more interesting than a ball or a guitar. You know, um, uh, you know. Well, the, the social media. for some, for some, but for most, for most. And and this is what's happened. And and you look now at international sport where Australia is, uh, <laughs> and mate. The problem is none of our kids are doing what Gleeson and myself did and Shane and Brett Lee and uh, Steve War and you, you know, all our, our legends, especially I, I grew up on the story of Donald Bradman. Yes, yeah, so. the, the stump and the golf ball rather than the cricket bat and the cricket ball, you know, the corrugated iron. So I thought about that story and I thought, okay, how do I make it harder for myself so when I get on the soccer field it becomes easy? And it's those small little uh, thoughts. And it's funny, but it wasn't just you back then. It, the culture of craft and skill and games was in the neighbourhood. And uh, from my little Spears Point Bullaroo, we had the Tredenics, we had the Bourbons, we had the uh, McClellans, we had Cowburns, we had Bugards. You know, a lot of those players went on and all played for the Jets and KB and the rest of it. Uh, in fact, Cowburns and, uh, uh, Bugards, you know, the boys are now, well, one of them's st- still at the Jets now. So it's, you, you become a, you are a product of your parents, but then you become a product of your environment. And, uh, Glee, how old are you, mate? I'm 51. Apparently. Okay, well, I'm, I'm 59, so I'm, I'm, I'm your elder brother. Uh, <laughs> but, mate, we, we, we had the glory days. How old are you, Shane? I'm 46. Okay, a bit younger again. Um, but I reckon my age and a little bit older, five years older than me, that was the glory days even before that. Remember, per capita, we used to have more world champions per capita, mm. than every other country in the world. Did you yeah. know that?
0: I did know that, yeah. Not anymore. Not anymore. A mm. long,
2: long way to it. We're an embarrassment in a, in a lot of codes, in a lot of codes where we were once world champions.
1: Amazingly, across, across, you know, whether it was sailing or surfing or boxing or tennis or, you know, just a cricket, vast cricket, array of sports. rugby.
0: Yep.
2: Yeah, cricket, rugby, all, all of them, all of them mate, that's what I'm saying, more world champions per capita than America, than Russia, than England, than France, than Germany, all who had 10, 20 times the population we had.
0: Yeah, I was lucky enough to be part of the 99 Cricket World Cup and that year we won the rugby, the cricket, the netball and I think we even took darts off the palms as well so we we're, we're a major sporting force back then.
2: Yeah. And you you know why? You know why we we had that then? Because back in our days and and the previous days, there was very little to do because technology didn't invade our life and take over our life like it has now. And uh, there was black and white. There was right and wrong. There was good and bad. But there was the joy of the culture and the sporting culture you grew up in. Mm. Um, and, and that was glory. You, you mentioned surfing. What about Meriwether and, um, four times world champion Mark Richards? I mean, yeah, that little coastline there. It's, it's, it, uh, the culture and the currency by which you were judged was h- how good you were on a surfboard.
1: Another thing that I find, uh, frustrating is the monetizing of everything. Everyone knows how much. Uh, Lionel Messi's getting and everyone knows how much uh, such and such signed for and you've got all these kids who are putting the the, the, the cart well before the horse and that you know these the, the 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 love of the game is what drives you on to those things but I think kids a lot now see that these days that oh you know if I can do this I'll get millions and millions of dollars and once again I don't think that was the motivation um, you know people who I remember um, Johnny Mays used to. He was a rugby league player. He'd played for uh, for Eastern Suburbs, and he came and he was playing North Newcastle. And you'd see him around the place, and you'd see local footballers working in, in you know local jobs, whether it be brickies or whatever. And, and but now it's a, you know kids are taken away from their family environment very early, and it's it's a, just so different now.
0: It is. look, and, and there's no foundation for the kids, right? Everything's fast-paced. Mm-hmm. And if you build a house without foundations, the first storm, it's, the house is going to fall down. And, and Glee, so you, you, you've you been a big um, advocate around talking about particularly these young child shows like The Young Voice, whatever it was called, mm, yeah. and exploiting these kids and exposing them to social media at a young age. There's some real detriment to that.
1: Oh, there really is. And and when I first saw it, I used to say to people, it's like a magician explaining his trick and showing you how it's all done I mean what when we started off as a band you wanted to to play gigs as much as you could but the first thing you wanted to do was get into a room and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse so you didn't look like a mug when you got out there you know but now they show you they show you someone telling you what song to sing and and what how to dance and and at what look to have and like you've these kids in the, those shows, you know, they're as young as twelve and thirteen, and then they get on the show and they perform like a performing seal, and and kind of get judged by people, by adults who say cruel and terrible things. I just thought it, I thought it was fraught with danger.
0: Definitely is. And you also mentioned about kids' sport now, and everyone gets a gets a prize. Mm-hmm. I want to see what, what what your thoughts are on that, Craig. Fabulous,
2: yeah, 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 fabulous. Give them all the prize, yeah, <laughs> fabulous. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he says facetiously
2: <laughs> yeah that's why the game's gone bankrupt uh, yeah. not not just financially but morally but carry on
1: if you want to build a, a place with the greatest penthouse that's ever been built right that's 70 floors up in the air you still need to build very very strong foundations every time you can never start on the penthouse <laughs> and that's kind of the, the lesson everyone needs
0: to learn and craig so you uh, wrote letters to man united Chelsea and Middlesbrough when you were 14 and it was Middlesbrough that eventually replied and your parents, is it true they sold their house for you to buy the ticket for you to go to England?
2: Yes, yes. Um, um, There was a bit of politics in the middle and um, I was playing really well when I was 12, 13 and uh, and what have you and then they picked a rep team out at Lake Macquarie and I I wasn't in it and Dad just went nuts because he thought I should have been in it. So, politics is in football and sp- sport now big time but it was back then as well and dad said this this is ridiculous so he took me to newcastle and i played in the newcastle lambton and uh and i actually got in the newcastle rep team so with that bit of confidence i said dad look i, I-, I want to go overseas the well, problem was i wasn't the best player in my old lake macquarie team you know i've mentioned the names tradenix cowburns mcclellans they were better than me so i was so embarrassed I couldn't tell them where I was going. I just left school without telling them. And then I was embarrassed because my parents sold the house. So, uh, that's how I went over there because I hadn't practiced the skills like other people had. But I loved it. And that's why, um, dad and mum said, well, yeah, let's let's take a punt on him because he wants to do it. And uh, you know, the funny thing is you mentioned 14, I think I was about 13 and a half and my leg had got better and better every year. And I'd said to mum, you know, I used to watch uh match of the day, the big match on uh, Monday night, black and white television still. And I just fell completely in love with the game. And I said, that's what I wanted to do. Even though I was a very good student, good at science, maths, English, I was a grade A student. And, um, and, and I said, I want to go to England. Mum said, well, that's good. And Mum was a teacher. She said, if you come in first in science, maths and English, we'll pay your fare to go over there. So I studied like no kid had ever studied before, knowing it was all about the craft, the hard work, and, and I did. And I, I I, got such good results that mum had to come up with her side of the boat and mum and dad's side of the boat. So so they sold the house but and moved to a smaller one, but the only problem was uh, it was only a one-way ticket. <laughs> That's all we could afford.
0: <laughs> and Gleeson, so growing up, be, being a, a, a cricketer, you tell your parents you want to be a cricketer or a footballer or, or the lead singer of a rock band is not the obvious choice, particularly for a parent. Were your parents encouraging of your music Aspirations?
1: Uh, well, not not as far as uh, being a, a lifelong career. I don't think. <laughs> um, I remember because I wanted to be a few things when I was growing up. I wanted to be a copper because my older brother Tony uh, was a 25 year policeman. Um, and then, yeah, the, I was I was at the time I was uh, refereeing rugby league, and. So I was just playing um, uh, school concerts and stuff like that uh, to raise money for St Vincent de Paul and the Forty Hour Famine and all that type of behaviour at St uh, at Francis Xavier's in Newcastle, and then yeah, kind of fell into the band. But actually, by singing at mass, I sang um, the Hounds of Heaven, I think it was at, the, at a school mass, and Warmo uh, Grant Warmsley asked me if I wanted to come and have a have a sing with him and. Frankie Manita, who uh, had a bit of a thing going on, and that's how we got into our first band. And pretty honestly, it, it just kind of, it wasn't like it grew, but it kept growing and growing. I mean, I was in that band for three years, and then the Jets formed partly out of the ashes of, of, of Aspect, the first band, and then, yeah, it just took off. When, when better came out, we, we caused a bit of a stir by being a bunch of upstarts with dirty mouths and bad attitudes. and then. Uh, you know, when Better came out in 91, that kind of uh, went really well for us. And I've said it before and I'll say it again the hard part's not getting famous, <laughs> it's staying famous. <laughs>
0: we'll take a quick break now. We'll be back after lunch on Lunch with Lee. no secret i love a gin and one of our sponsors here lunch with lee is the gin society which i happen to be a member of when you sign up they'll send you a full-size bottle of amazing craft gin delivered to your door every two months plus the latest issue of their beautiful gin journal magazine and a surprise gift absolutely free each gin is sourced by a team of experts looking for exclusive unique and exquisite drops from around the world a subscription to the Gin Society is your passport to the world of craft gin. No strings attached. Cancel any time. Check out the website www.ginsociety.com Spartan Sports is recognised as one of the world's most exciting and innovative sporting brands with a community focus. Our product range across cricket, rugby, football, volleyball, basketball and fitness has been developed to sell directly to any club, school, corporate or individual. Go to our website and order directly to your front door. www.spartansports.com. Spartan Sports unearth the warrior in you. Getting back to you, Craig. With so you, you get to you get to Middlesbrough. You have your first trial match. and At halftime, you've taught to, you're told what.
2: Uh, when I had my um, big trial with Jack Charlton, I'd only been there a day. Uh, so it was some, summertime here and I'd been at Nobby's with uh, some of the, the blokes I mentioned and, uh, uh, you know, incredibly hot day. And then two days later, I was in the snow in the north of England in Middlesbrough in the mud and uh, the rain. Um, and we're getting beat at three, three and a half time and I was having a shocker. And, and the famous Jack Charlton came into the dressing room and he, he roasted everyone. He said, you're useless, rubbish, hopeless, bugger off. Uh, and he came to me, he said, and, and mate, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Newcastle, northern New South Wales, Australia. He said, well, you are the worst footballer I've ever seen in my life now. Now, hop it. But he didn't say hop it. He said the, uh, you know, the other words. Yes. And, uh, and I said, I said, what now? Meaning half time. He said, yes, now. (laughs) What is it? So I, uh, everybody was quite shocked and, uh, I packed my little bag up very quickly and then went out into the snow and the cold. And, uh, I didn't know where I was staying in the digs. So, uh, 15 year old. And then I had to figure out, uh, what I was going to do. So, uh, so that was my big trial. Um, yeah
0: couple of years practising in the car park, as you called the car park sessions, where you just, as you said, learnt your craft, you were, you were kicking a tennis ball against a wall until you got better and better and better and, and that's where you really honed your skills.
2: I, 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 I just had a very creative and uh, mind. I was, a, I was a bit of a dreamer and a bit of a – well, a big dreamer. So I, I invented uh, a system uh, to be better at night than I was when I woke up in the morning. You know, at five o'clock, I'd get there at five o'clock before the players around, uh, arrived, because Charlton had told me to, uh, you know, bugger off. Um, so I had to get in and get out before he came to work, and then when he left, I would get into the car park and out again. But I would do four, five, six hours training: left foot, right foot, control, pass, dribble, shoot, all the things that I saw the players do on a daily basis. And I knew because I, I I invented something, and this is I think the key to why I became a actual uh a, you know a player a, a professional player i I created um mistake to attempt ratio. By drawing bits of chalk on the wall, I drew a, a, a goal and then I drew four targets on the goal. And then I would do left foot, right foot. I'd do 10 shots each. And if I missed uh, five of them, let's say that was my mistake to attempt ratio with my left foot that day. And I'd write it down next day. If I did, uh, if I hit six of the targets, well, I was a better player than I was yesterday. So really, before anybody used the word data, I was creating my own KPI or data metric, so I could say, "Hey, I'm a better player tonight." And if I focused, I could be so. Rather than six hours, I was now doing five hours, and then a month later, I was doing four hours, uh, and then I could get back into the into the digs, into uh, you know, uh, and, and and have bacon and eggs, whatever you you had for dinner, um, and uh, baked beans. I remember, um, and the other kids they were doing none of this. You know, the, the other uh, apprentices that were really good players from Scotland, Ireland, Wales, but the, the kid from Aussie who was the hopeless one, I was doing all his homework and then uh, it started to tell after about a year and a half, it started to tell and uh, and they let me play with uh, the rest of the kids.
0: Amazing story, mate. And, and so, Glee, so it's funny in the music industry, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, but I suppose we are getting to a stage Craig's talking about now getting towards getting his chance soon in his story here and but you guys got signed um, by a record label over uh, the screaming Jets and a lot of people think you now signed you've made it but often the record companies would put a big advance they'd throw costs onto the bill and a lot of the bands never pay it off is that it must have been frustrating thing to see happen to the band
1: yeah look, obviously you, you you think it's going to be like the, the yeah. movies you think it's going to be like uh, like you've you've seen other bands trajectories and stuff. There's um, as many as slip twixt the cup and the lip. The great William Bonnie said. Um, I think he said it. He, at least he said it in that Young Guns movie. And that that looked really <laughs> factual. Um, but yeah, look, we, we a lot of the early stuff that you did that we did like touring overseas, where we had uh, record companies tour support, um, uh, the, the video clips. We did a video. the The film clip for um better cost ninety thousand bucks in in nineteen ninety, and I remember telling the old man that, and I just hit yeah. the floor. I mean, I think our I think our house at Cardiff cost twenty or seventeen thousand dollars or something when they first bought it in nineteen seventy three or four or whenever, and and then. I reckon we spent on the second uh, album. I, I think we did five video clips for three hundred and sixty thousand bucks as well. So, and you, at the time, you think you know this is this money is just coming from some vast thing, um, and then obviously you find out, as you say, that uh, all this money's recoverable at a at a premium rate and stuff. Um, having said that, they don't come after you um, and, and try and you know, sue you for the money or anything like that. But the big companies, God bless them. <laughs> but, uh, but it certainly, you know, hangs over your head as, as um, you know, something that kind of – when we do sell albums uh, through Sony, uh, who owns that contract, uh, all that money goes to them. So, yeah, but you, it's one of those things. You take your eye off the ball. as you When we were young, we were kind of – as I said, we just were going around the world, touring, playing – you know five nights a week wherever we were and partying and carrying on and leaving all the nuts and bolts up to someone else and that's a trap for young players (laughs) players in the music industry and
0: and how did you find the the football industry over there Craig like uh, once so you, you finally get signed now you're a paid player how'd that change the world for you
2: Oh, well, it was a job. Uh, like Lisa, so you do it for years and years. You do it for nothing, but you, you, you love it and uh, you build up your skills and then you're very confident and you, you kind of know you're worth money. Um, but, but mine was a, a little bit different in the way that, um, when I first went there, I was actually paying the club to stay, uh, in the end. Uh, some of the, the older pros found out about what Charlton said and they, they knew I couldn't stay in the digs. Um, so they said well if you clean our boots and you clean our cars we'll give you some money so you can pay your fare home and uh uh so i was i was getting a little bit of money that way they won't give me much but uh i learned a lot about soccer boots and cars because uh, <laughs> I, I was clean 100 100 boots a day and they ended up paying me in uh, in soccer boots and a uh, bloke called Graham Sooners had Puma Kings which were made of kangaroo leather really thin and that was the boot of the day uh so he he paid me uh, he 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 paid me in Puma Kings and uh I thought I'd I'd made it when I was like 15 and a half uh 16 and I would run around in his Puma Kings and uh uh uh, uh mate the funny thing is that when I actually then uh became better after about a year and a half. There was a lot of sickness in the club. Um, and uh, th- then they gave me a start because uh, they couldn't fulfil a whole team uh, because of this virus that was going around and everyone was sick. So I wasn't supposed to come on. They're getting beat 2-0 at half time. And for months and months and months, uh, eight months, I- I'd practiced chip in the crossbar, um, I, I practiced throwing the ball onto a brick wall, letting it bounce across me and then volleying it into one of the targets and I uh, I then um, uh, practiced dead ball, right foot and left foot. Anyway, so I scored a chip. We're getting beat 2-0 at halftime. I came on, uh, scored a chip, I scored a volley and I scored a dead ball and we won 3-2. So uh, they basically said, well, hang on a sec, you know, the kangaroos... Uh, the kangaroo in the car park was my nickname Uh, and they said the kangaroos come out of the car park and uh, basically they gave me a wage which was 14 pound a week and uh, every week I used to uh, uh, write home to my parents and tell them what I was doing what I wasn't doing and, uh, and, and what have you but I'd always had this passion for photography, and uh, every every day I'd walk home. There was a camera shop, and there was this one Russian camera called a uh, Zenit, EM, and it was actually uh, it was uh, twenty four dollars which is two weeks' wages. So I, my first two weeks' wages, I couldn't wait to get in that camera shop. Now, rather than explain the apprentices I was working with and the digs I was now staying in, I just take – and the car park, Middlesbrough car park, I just take a picture and send it home to mum and dad. So, uh, so that was my first uh, bit of uh, money and my first contract.
0: And then the big break came with the opportunity to go to well, a number – of I think you were 10 clubs approached you – um, you end up choosing Liverpool. What was your, what was the reason behind choosing Liverpool?
2: Well, first of all, from the fourteen dollars, uh, fourteen quid a week, and I was sixteen and a half then. The same thing happened with the squad about a year later. They were quite decimated because of a, a bad flu virus. So I, I got in the, the Middlesbrough first team. So then I, I, I um, and I played really well. Um, so they gave me a professional contract. So so uh, from being worth. Nothing, the worst player at 15, 15, years old. I, I, I became the youngest player ever to play for Middlesbrough in an FA Cup game against Everton. So two and a half years, that car park, whatever I was doing, it worked. It worked. So now I was getting a lot of money, you know, some, something like, uh, 500 quid a week or something at, at, at Middlesbrough. And then, Ten teams came in for me, including Tottenham Hotspurs, Manchester United, Chelsea, all the ones I'd written to, by the way, and, and who said no. Um, and But the two main ones were Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. And Nottingham Forest manager Brian Clough, he was the biggest personality in the, in, in, in the league in England at that time. And uh, everybody was signing. And I think they'd won the league that year and Liverpool hadn't. Um, but I, uh, I didn't know which one to sign for, so I phoned Dad, uh, and 12,000 miles away, he said, well, he said, uh, he said, the way I see it, Brian Clough is, is just a man, you know, uh, but Liverpool is an institution. He said, so if it was me, he said, I, I'd go for Liverpool, uh, which I did. And that that's how I that's how they saw me. And by the way, I was a, became you know the most expensive player in um, in football history for a day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I was still there, so You're laughing, going, right? mate. That's but a, I was there. I was there.
0: They cannot take that away from you. <laughs> yeah. No. So so Gle- on that. So um, if someone, you know, a mate's son or daughter says to you they want to be a, a rock star, what advice would you give them?
1: Oh, look, it's just so much more um, multifaceted now. I'm- I guess the biggest thing I try to, same as I was talking about before, is there's no use showing off before you got the goods. So there's this very real temptation to think everything when you start off, as most people do in bands or in creative pursuits, uh, when you start getting people saying, oh, that's amazing, you're amazing, Um, you can believe it all too quickly and end up firing off too early. That's. The, I think the difference was with us. There was a a guy called an A and R guy, an artist and repertoire guy, um, or Gert Gal as it was, um, and they were kind of uh, as well as looking after the band at the label. They listened to the demos that the band was doing, said yeah maybe not or yeah maybe that or you know g- gave you a bit of direction. Not that you always had to take that direction, but there was you know there was objective kind of uh, opinion coming in. And I think, you know, this temptation to get immediately on social media and throw everything that you've got uh, out there can can really be a bit harmful to people's careers in the as they progress. And I'm sure people get better and better and then look back at stuff they've posted and go, oh, um, not that I don't look back at some of our videos and go, why haven't you got a shirt on, Dave? What is going on with you? Uh, hey, I'll tell you what, if I could do it still, I would still would. be walking around without a shirt on. <laughs> don't worry about that. Um, and your pants. <laughs> <laughs> rock rock yeah, and roll, baby, rock and roll. <laughs> don't, get, uh, don't get too carried away. And, and of course, the, the other thing is, and, and uh, as Craig touched on as well, not everything you do is going to work. Not everything you're going to do is going to be, Gold or amazing, and those things you just have to get those things out of you. You can't, not every, you, you've everyone's got to have stuff ups and failures and find out different routes and paths and um, falling at the first hurdle. I think is uh, is a big trap for a lot of people.
0: And and Craig, I don't want to I don't want to wind forward too fast, but because you got so many bloody highlights, mate, in your career, amazing story. But nine eighty six at the FA Cup and you're one 0 down against Everton. Um, you end up winning the game 3-1, you scored a goal in the FA Cup final. Talk me through that, mate. That's, that's been amazing.
2: I had a dream to be the greatest soccer player in the world, and I failed miserably. <laughs> but, but but I did end up playing for Liverpool, uh, and as I say, I was, the, I was the worst player in the world's best team, and the boy from Bullaroo, that'll do for me.
0: Mate, well, pretty good record, mate. <laughs> you got five league titles, including an FA Cup, and... You get to a point in your career where you've got all this, you had all this success, and then unfortunately, mate, your sister fell seriously ill in Morocco and she needed around-the-clock care, and you chose to leave football and be her full-time carer. Uh,
2: Not quite true, not quite true. Um, Yeah, my little sister Faye had a a, a dreadful, dreadful accident. Her husband had died the week before in... um, Afghanistan, and she had to go and get his belongings and then she went to Morocco and she was coming to London to see me and uh, she was in a horrific accident uh, she was having a shower upstairs in a small room and the flame that lights the hot water gas flame blew out so the gas was now in this small little room and she inhaled it um, and uh, fell down and as she fell down she hit her head on the side of the bath which completely knocked her out so she was smelling the, the gas in a small small room for for an hour, uh, and that was depriving her of oxygen. So she then was in a coma in a hospital in Morocco, and it was Christmas uh, just bef- before Christmas uh, day. So I had to uh, stop what I was doing in in, in Liverpool, get a a, a plane over there, a private plane to to pick her up and then bring her back from Morocco with her with her daughter Jamila to uh, to London. And then, um, I was 26, 27 at the time, and I was up and down the motorway. Nobody knew about it, uh, except the, um, Kenny Dale Gleesh and the club secretary. Nobody else at the club knew, because I didn't want it in the paper. And then mum and dad sitting next to her, it just, just brought it home to me. Uh, I guess I'd never had the time to, to sit and contemplate what I, what I'd done. And I thought, I've basically, you know, we're scoring that goal in the FA Cup final, as you've said. That was my dream. That was any kid's dream anywhere, and uh, it it just just dawned on me. Hang on, you know, look at Faye. That could be me. Something snapped, and I just said, "Okay, um, I'm going home." And um, and we all thought that Faye would come out of. Uh, her uh, unconsciousness, if you like, or the, or the state that she was in, we all thought she would, and I thought, well, if it takes two, three, four months fine um, i 'll I'll go back to football, um, which I was you know very welcome, uh, Kenny Dalgleish made it clear, um, and then when I got back because of the hotel bills and um, uh, everything else the the hospital bills and the medical stuff. I decided to retire because uh, I'd run out of money and and I didn't have a job and I wasn't qualified for anything. And then a, an old uh, friend of a friend phoned me. His name was David Hill, uh, and he said that he works for Wide World of Sports, and he he knows that uh, I could do a good job as a you know a a, a, a a producer, writer, journalist. So he offered me a job at Wide World of Sport, and I I had to get some money so. So I I took that job and then kind of I had to keep working to pay the bills and that's why uh nobody had ever retired at 27 from uh, professional football before. Uh I got two or three offers coming in from Juventus and from a couple of London clubs who who shall rename, remain nameless uh all tried to get me to sign back on. Uh Graeme Souness when he came back to the club as manager, he got me over there to uh to sign back on. But Fay actually never came good, if you like, and Mum still looks after her out at Toronto every day. So that—that's my my biggest regret. Uh, not not that I retired and didn't fulfil my potential, but that that Fay didn't get better.
0: Mate, amazing story, mate. You're a um, a selfless man, mate. And then on top of that, then you go after you did retire, you go back after the Hillsborough disaster, um, help raise funds for you know was it 90, 92 um, Liverpool fans that unfortunately were crushed in the in the stand there, mate, you go back and you're a superhuman, mate. You really are. Oh,
2: oh you'd have done it. We'd all have done it um, because, it, it, you know, if you're part of Liverpool, it's part of family and, um, you know, there, there's just a, a, a just a strong love for everybody and uh, it was such a, a catastrophic moment for the club and that's why the club's got such a rich history. And I often say that... Um, that I didn't understand the huge stakes that we were all playing with when you pull on that Liverpool shirt and what it means. You, you you know, you think it's just a shirt, it's just a red shirt. But when you saw things like parents that had lost a child or some some of them two children, and then children that had actually lost parents at Hillsborough, but the next week they turned up at the ground and they weren't angry or or... or, or, or lashing out at the club they wanted to come to the club because they used it as as like um, a mausoleum they used it as a cathedral they used it as a a healing tool and there was so much sort of Tragedy and and sadness around for months and months and I remember Kenny Dalgleish was in the middle of all of that and uh, him and his wife be, took on such an enormous task of, uh, the, the, the bereaving, uh, the bereavement of the families and, uh, the sadness. They would come to King Kenny and his wife, al- almost for blessing. Um, and there was no anger. There was no anything. It was, it was just incredible, palpable. And, uh, I'd seen, I'd seen in the, in the newspaper here in Australia, I'd, I'd seen there was two girls who were crushed up against the, uh, the, the, the iron fence at Hillsborough at, at Sheffield Wednesday's ground. And that was the headline that went all over the world. These two girls with their necks contorted against the fence. And one of the reasons I went back, I recognized those two girls because they were always the first at the club and first in line because they loved it more than the, the other fans loved it. And that they would come every day to training. And that's why I recognized it. And, uh, I clearly, you know, obviously thought they were dead. And after I'd been at the club for, for, for a couple of weeks and, uh, you know, w- was was trying to help as best as I can, the priest ca- tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Craig, Craig, I know you've done a lot of work and a lot of crying today and all of that stuff, but uh, somebody wants to see you. And I said, "said well, who? He said, well, come and I'll show you. Anyway, I, I came to the back of the room and there were the two girls. They were alive. Everybody Jeez. thought they were dead and they weren't. And uh, I said something to them about, um, and we had a chat and I said, well, 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 where we go from here? And the first thing they said is, well, we want to replay the game and, and we want to go to Wembley because we need to win the FA Cup. When you're a sports person in a town like that, that's the
0: stakes with which you're playing. Mm. And Gleeson, the, the Jets are just—you've um, just done a remix and a new video of Helping Hand.
1: Yeah, yeah, we, uh, you know, decided to use the time we were supposed to start a tour. The first week of—I think it was supposed to start actually last week. First week of May, we were embarking on a ten-week tour, and during that time, we were going to record another studio album. So. That all got smacked around very badly. So what we decided to do was to just test out uh, what the capabilities are, you know, what be between us we can come up with. So we uh, all recorded in isolation at our various homes around the place and um, put it all, send it all off to Steve James, who's our producer, son of Sid James, so... He's good for love. And we sent it all off to him and he, he, he did a great job mixing it. So it's nice to know that you can still create something. And the harder part is uh, is no, no feedback. Yes, crowds. sure. Look, I've, I've got to say. We all know it. What about when the crowd's going nuts Yeah, it's a good it? feeling. <laughs> just, there's nothing like it. didn't happen it. very
0: often, but it was a good feeling when it did. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I was listening to uh, a lot of the Jets on the weekend, Dave, and um, a lot of the lyrics are still ring true now, and I, I know you did it. It's one of my favourite covers of all time, The Eve of Destruction, and some of the lyrics in that just mm. know, ring really true today. You know, there's, There is a lot of hate in red China, and take a look around your own backyard. It's some really, really powerful lyrics and yeah. um, it's a sign of a, a, of a good band that can write those lyrics and uh, still make it current today.
1: Yes, no, we were very lucky. We found a, a friend of mine in Newcastle, uh, Jim Duncombe, his name was, he was the first manager of my first band and he used to always be pushing these great 60s songs at me and telling me, oh, you got to do a version of this or a version of that. and Eve of Destruction was one of the ones that he uh, told us to do, or asked us to, to do for a long time. And when, we'd re-recorded, when we re recorded it in 97, I think, 97, um, that's exactly what I thought. I thought, here it is. It's 20 years after or 30 years after this song came out nearly and all, and it all still rings true. And, and here we are 30 or 20 years later and it's uh, still the same. As you say, it's a, a testament. I think the guy's name was... P.F. Sloan. You've got to give it uh, raps where you can, but, yeah, P.F. Sloan. And you
0: stepped into the shoes of one of the great Australian rock bands of all time, the Angels, after Doc Neeson unfortunately passed away a few years ago. How's that been, playing with those boys?
1: Oh, it's been fantastic. I started off with them, I think, 2011. I was my first foray into the Angels, and obviously I grew up as an Angels fan, my two older brothers were Angels fans. Everyone was an Angels fan. Um, so, and then we, when when the Jets started off, we supported cool. them on a couple of national tours, and uh, so I had a huge knowledge of the Angels and respect for Doc, obviously, as the greatest uh, greatest frontman going around. And uh, yeah, so I, I obviously had big shoes to fill. But I oh, mean, he's about six foot six. He was big shoes, wasn't he? um And I'm just, a, <laughs> I'm just a little squib. But um, but at first people were a little bit kind of confronted by it, I guess. But um, as long, I think as long as I just get up there and, and do my best to help keep the songs alive and the energy of those songs alive, uh, it's really over the last nine years we've built it right back up to, uh, to, you know, filling houses all over the place and recording and it's unreal. Now,
0: Glessy, you probably don't know this, but Craig's actually, or it can cost you and I a fortune. So, Craig, did you invent the bar-fridge-weighted system where if you take something from a bar-fridge in a hotel, it can register? Is that you?
2: The butler, yeah. Mate, it cost us a fucking fortune. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tell you why I invented it, because it cost me a fortune. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not going to mention his name, but my room partner at the time used to... uh, have a drink of Scotch or whiskey or something, and then fill it up with coloured water. Yeah. And and now and again we got found out, and I had to pay <laughs> a <bill. laughs> So um, so I, I was just thinking one day, well, if and this was before the internet or any of that stuff, I said, well, hang on, there's a phone here, and there's a fridge in in every hotel room. So if you could send a signal via the phone down to reception, then you'd know if you'd taken with sensors if you'd taken the, the, the alcohol, and and that then became. The Butler and Electrolux uh, bought the patents, and uh, then it became wow. uh, a global thing in hotels. So, <laughs> yeah, so Sorry right, about mate. that, mate. You're sorry you about that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, boys, I, I want to thank you both um, for coming on the show. Being two Newcastle boys, both from Cardiff, both with the curly locks, but both grand, great, great <laughs> Australian legends. Um, as I said at the start, you're both relentless in your pursuits, different pursuits, albeit, but you're committed, hard working, and you know I'm going to take a lot of these lessons out to, to teach my kids about the real hard yards that you need to put in to be successful in anything it's all down the shoe leather doing 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 the hours um and successful will come to those who are prepared to commit and and work hard and um you both really are two great examples of that so thank you so much for coming on the show Good to speak to you both, boys. Thank you.
1: Yeah, you too, Craig. And can and, I just say, my, what I took out of this is if you clean enough pairs of boots, you, you will revolutionise footy boots for the rest of all time.
0: <laughs> Bingo. And, please, so where can we catch you on Sunday night? You do a
1: show? Yeah, Sunday night on Dave Gleeson Facebook Live, 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every Sunday, me and a mate banging out a few tunes and having a laugh. Love
0: it. Thanks, boys. Thanks for your time, boys. Take care. That's it for Lunch With Lee this week. A big thank you goes out to our guests, Craig Johnson and Dave Gleeson. Thanks to Hilton Headley for your hard work and making things happen. Thanks to our sponsors, The Gin Society and Spartan Sports. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Do us a favour, hit five stars. If you're passionate, leave a review. Next week, we'll be chatting to a few more lovable larrikins, discussing more about music, sport and business on another
1: cracker episode of Lunch With Lee. We'll see you then.